Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Flynn Berry, whose latest novel is Northern Spy. Earlier novels, Under the Harrow, which won the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, and A Double Life. Flynn Berry graduated from Brown and the Mishner Center for Writers and received a Yaddo Fellowship. Northern Spy takes place in Northern Ireland, among Catholics in Northern Ireland. I was having a little trouble on the timeline. Is this supposed to be now? Are we talking about now during the pandemic? Oh, no. So the novel is set in the near future. So it's it's set a few years from now in a sort of alternate history. And it is meant to be sort of untied to one specific year, though. I wanted it to feel like it could have happened or be happening pretty much um, any time to a degree. But the idea is that a couple decades after the Good Friday Agreement, which would be around now, and that there has been a return to the violence of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. I spoke very recently with someone from Ireland who has been working here in the States, and it's not that far-fetched to see the Troubles starting up just a little bit more. He's Catholic from the South, and he said there is no way in a million years he would walk into a Protestant section of Belfast or Londonderry. So that part is still real. It is still very much a divided society in some ways. So the Good Friday Peace Agreement in 1998 ostensibly ended the troubles and the conflict. But if you visit Northern Ireland and particularly Belfast, there are still murals on the sides of buildings with images of masked men and slogans about the IRA or the loyalist paramilitaries. And there are still peace walls separating Protestant and Catholic housing communities in Belfast that haven't come down. And then just this past month, there was pretty extreme rioting in Belfast to the point that the White House commented on it and the prime minister. It was interesting because some of the people rioting were as young as 12 and 13 And so they were born after the peace agreement, but they hadn't maybe seen all the benefits of peace that they had been promised. And so they were caught up in sectarian violence again. It sounds as if what's stirring everything up right now is Brexit, which I notice is not mentioned in your book deliberately, I would assume now. It is, yeah. I was inspired to write the book after Brexit and the sort of realization that it would draw all of this attention back to the fact that there is still a border on the island of Ireland and you still have Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland as its own nation and how the plan for Brexit didn't really take that into consideration. So you have the powers that be in London and who are planning for, for leaving the EU without really having a good sense of what then would become of Northern Ireland. 
Now, when you started this book, I guess it was before the pandemic, did you go to Ireland? Because I noticed uh, in an interview and actually in the book itself, you have a very strong sense of place. Yeah, I, I definitely write a lot from landscape. Landscape is one of the big things that I read for and one of my favorite things to write. And I visited Ireland once and then I went for this novel on a research trip to Northern Ireland and stayed in Belfast for a few weeks and on the North coast and just sort of wandered around filling notebooks with uh, research and ideas for the novel. When was that? That was in May, two years ago now. As you're working on the book, I guess in the later stages of working on the book, you couldn't have gone back, which did that create a problem? It didn't because I had enough material. And I also, I have two tiny children. And so the prospect of going on another long, weeks long research trip is kind of impossible anyway. So I did a lot of research after the trip as well in terms of reading books and watching documentaries and studying archival photographs and trying to get sort of as much material as I could get my hands on to complement all of the kind of interviews and on the ground research that I had done while I was actually in Ireland and Northern Ireland. When you talk about doing the interviews, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, does any of that material specifically appear in the book? I mean, uh, Tessa works for the BBC behind the scenes. Uh, she's a producer. Did you speak with a producer at the BBC at that I point? I did. I'm so glad you asked because that was my favorite part of researching the book. When I was in Belfast, I shadowed a political correspondent at the BBC at Broadcasting House in Belfast and sat at a desk in the producer's section and got to sit in on the news meetings and the live recordings and the interviews with politicians and to see the TV studio and the makeup room and the staff canteen and the whole building. And one section from the book is pretty much lifted verbatim from the morning editorial meeting that I sat in on where you have all these very witty, very sharp editors pitching their stories for the day in a morning meeting. And I was taking notes on that and then put a lot of it in the book just as is, as I had heard it. There's comments from people, the Catholics who know uh, Tessa, about how they sort of feel as if she's selling out by being in the BBC. Did anybody from the BBC mention that stuff to you? I did hear that. One producer I talked to said that people would say, why do you work for the British Broadcasting Corporation? And sort of emphasis on the British as though what she was doing was kind of traitorous. And what she said in reply was that you can't change it unless you're in it. And that people from the Catholic community should be in positions like that, where they're part of the news that millions of people are listening to on the radio every single day or reading on the news website or watching on the evening news. But it was interesting. And that's directly in the book, actually, as a response she gives. The relationship of the IRA to the Catholics, I assume a lot of that is based on research from the past. But in speaking with people, how much of that is based on what's going on now, even if we're not talking about the violence? It's really interesting because the IRA in the community has such a kind of conflicted relationship because the IRA is sort of initially 
thought of or was presented as the defenders of the Catholic community. And that when Catholic homes were being burned down at the start of the Troubles, that the goal of the IRA was to sort of defend the Catholic community. There is still that loyalty, I think, that you see quite often. But then on the other hand, a lot of the people who I interviewed mentioned how the IRA and the loyalist paramilitaries engage in punishment shootings called kneecappings, which are so common that the government has actually done a sort of public service announcement against them. And the way it works is that if they catch someone like selling drugs in the Catholic housing estate, that that person will have to show up at a required time and be shot in the knees. And that kind of martial law is it's almost like living under a mafia. And so there are a lot of people who are very resistant to any sort of sentimentality about the IRA or mythologizing it. MI5 plays a role. I don't want to go too much into the book because obviously it's a thriller and there are uh, spoilers (laughs) that we want to avoid here, but MI5 does find its way in the book. Is the MI5 sequences, is that based on your original research or did you actually deal with people two years ago when you were there who had connections to MI5? I interviewed a security journalist and some reporters who had worked with sources from the intelligence community. And one thing they said that I found really interesting is that MI5 has a big base still outside of Belfast and that hundreds of agents from MI5 are in Northern Ireland at any given time, both to uncover any threats from the IRA or the loyalist paramilitaries, but also that it's sort of like a training ground for them that they'll then use to learn techniques and sort of spycraft and tradecraft for fighting other international terrorism, which I found such an interesting idea that it's still so present in Ireland or in Northern Ireland. And I also, one way I researched it was that there have been a few non, uh, sorry, nonfiction books written by former informers, and they talk about how it actually worked working with an MI5 handler and how the meetings were arranged and what was sort of promised. And some of them were kind of betrayed by their handlers. And so that ended up taking the book in sort of different directions, all that research. Flynn Berry, then let's go back a moment. Your previous novel, A Double Life, had come out and you were looking for another story. What brought you at that point to Northern Ireland and creating the character of Tessa? So I had always wanted to write about Northern Ireland and my family is partly from Ireland and it feels very familiar. I feel like the landscape is just sort of in my blood. And the first time I landed in Dublin, I remember just looking around and thinking that it felt like I had come home in a big way, which I think there's so many people from Irish extraction in America who who have felt the same way. And so I was always kind of curious and drawn to Ireland and to the Troubles in particular. Um, two things had sort of sparked the novel years ago, before, well before I started writing on it. And one was that I saw an archival photograph of two young women in skirts and berets. And in the picture, they're standing in a field and they're holding automatic rifles, and they were IRA members. And I was really curious about who they were and what had brought them to this moment in time and their stories. And the novel sort of was inspired by that, as well as by 
an article that Patrick Ryden Keefe wrote in the New Yorker before he wrote Say Nothing about a disappearance during the Troubles. And he talks about how the victim's son, years later, gets in a taxi driven by one of the men who abducted his mother. And he doesn't say anything because the IRA is still so powerful that if he spoke up, he would be in danger. And that just seemed like really right material for fiction, this idea that you have victims and perpetrators of crime living so close to one another. The character of Tessa, we now know why she became a producer at the BBC because of your research. You decided to give her a very, very young son and at the same time to make her separated from her husband. And I guess the separation had to do with keeping him (laughs) to the side of the plot. But at that particular time, you were also dealing with very young children yourself. It was, yeah. It was such a joy to write about young motherhood as I was experiencing it. So I started the novel actually just when I found out that I was pregnant with my first son. And then in the early drafts, Tessa's pregnant, as I was. And then in the finished book, her son is six months old. And all the material about the baby I wrote sort of in real time. So the descriptions of the baby at six months I wrote when my son was six months old and when he's 11 months old or a year old that I was writing that when my son was those ages. And it just felt really hugely satisfying to put all of my sort of delight in motherhood and my frustration or my doubts about my, you know, competency about motherhood into the novel and to refract it through Tessa. That also made it a little bit easier to go into Tessa's mind as she gets more and more frightened about the possibilities that this all could involve her child. Yeah, it does feel like as soon as you have a kid, the stakes are just higher for everything. And any little decision you make, you're also thinking about how it will impact your child and your responsibility. And I was thinking a lot about what it means to raise a kid somewhere that you don't feel is necessarily safe. And in the case of the novel, that's in Northern Ireland during a return to the Troubles. But in general, I think about that a lot. I mean, with the pandemic, obviously, it's been very hard for myself and for everyone to feel like you're keeping your kids safe. And so that felt like maybe the emotional heart of the book for me, that question. That brings up the question of how did the pandemic itself, beside that, affect the writing of the book? I mean, how much of your own fears went into the making of the book, do you think? Or is that just too soon to ask? So I had actually finished the manuscript before the pandemic started. I turned it into my editor about a week before we went into lockdown last March. And then I was doing revisions on it during the lockdown. But I think it it's still, I put all of my fear in it anyway, because I heard that when you're pregnant, your amygdala grows the part of your brain that controls fear and that never goes back down. And I definitely have felt that way. Like I think there's this level of sort of vigilance that you have once you have a baby that was actually kind of fitting for writing a thriller. Flynn Berry, in your first novel, Under the Harrow, you have two sisters who are quite close. Northern Spy has the same dynamic or a similar dynamic Is there a a dynamic in your life that you keep inserting into these or did it, is it just happenstance? So I have a brother. I don't have a sister, but my mom is one of four sisters and I've grown up watching her. And there's just something about the sister relationship that I'm always 
endlessly fascinated by. I realized that just today, uh, the novel I'm reading or just finished is called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, about two sisters. The TV show I was watching last night is about a comedian named Ashling B and her sister. And it's it's just a, a frame for drama that I find hugely compelling. And I think partly because there's a level of that the relationship can be challenging and that there can be a lot of anger or a lot of, you know, arguments or bickering that exist alongside the love and the devotion, which is fun to write. And then it's also, I think, fascinating to look at how women make choices over their lives and how you can have two little girls who start up in the same family, in the same house, and then go in completely different directions, which you see with Tessa and Marion in kind of heightened terms and that they're choosing radically different paths from one another. But also I think you see that in smaller daily ways in all of our families and friendships where, you know, the decision to get married or to have a child or to work a certain job or to travel, your sister is kind of your alter ego and your shadow self and living a life that you could be leading if your choices had been different. That comes into play very strongly in the relation between Marion and Tessa. One element of Under the Harrow that you discuss in an interview I read is that in novels written by men, women were described as beautiful and the physical nature of the woman is described. And what you say in that interview is that among women, that's not necessarily going to happen. And I realized in Northern Spy that you deliberately avoid saying this woman is attractive, things like that. And it's quite conscious, it, it appears to be, but I, I noticed it just in reading that interview. Yeah, it's funny. I, I had heard an interview with a writer, I think when I was a teenager, where she said, just to keep an eye out for how often a woman in fiction is described as beautiful or pretty or alluring or attractive versus a male character and how often it has nothing to do with the plot. Like, it's not like it's integral to the story in any way. It's just sort of tacked on. I live in LA and I have some friends who are screenwriters and they say the same thing where they'll read a script and the sort of little character description will include that the woman is beautiful, even if that has absolutely nothing to do with who this minor character is. So I've made a kind of conscious decision not to use those terms in any of my books. And it's also, I think a lot of people like being able to build up the character in their own mind and to envision them in their own mind. So I try to be kind of spare with describing physical attributes. It also comes across in the fact that while Tessa is attracted to the MI5 character, we never really know what he looks like. Yeah. And it's funny because I think I have a very clear picture in my head, but it's hard sometimes to translate that. I know the writer Maggie O'Farrell, who I adore, has said that whenever she reads a description of a character's appearance, she sort of skims over it, like narrows her eyes and reads it really quickly because she already has an idea of what the character looks like. And trying to sort of put together this nose and these cheekbones and this hair color doesn't actually work for her. But you're very clear about place, and that you describe in great detail. Marion likes to swim in the North Sea, and Tessa does a little bit of that too. Have you tried it? Yeah, I love it. And I find it really interesting in writing too. I love descriptions of swimming. I think the thriller genre is pretty good for me because otherwise I would write books that are just like 300 pages of descriptions of trees and the ocean 
with nothing happening in them. Um, but yeah, I think there's something about swimming that's just really kind of evocative and mysterious to me, especially in the ocean and cold water. At the end of the book, I was angry at Tessa because all her actions lead to other people making changes in their lives that they wouldn't have done, people that she has minimal connection with. I was interested in the kind of unintended consequences of doing the right thing. And you see that a lot with informers in the IRA and people in the conflict in general, where you can make this really small decision that you think is going to build a better society. And then there's just this kind of cascade of consequences that nobody sees coming. And so it it was interesting to write about what might happen that was unexpected and that wouldn't be neat or tidy and that would leave a lot of sort of messy open ends behind. Flynn Berry, when you're writing a novel, now you've written three and they're thrillers that take twists in the course of the book. How planned out are these? I mean, did you know when you began Northern Spy where it would go? No, not at all. So I don't ever plan out in advance. And I try to just write each scene as the character would experience it and then write the next scene as the character would experience it and not to get ahead of them. What that means is that the writing process is sort of hugely inefficient and I end up writing full drafts and then throwing them out and starting over from scratch, which I did with this book. The initial structure was actually a split narrative with one woman in the IRA, one woman on the outside. And then I, I think I spent about nine months on that one and then realized that the, the section, one section wasn't sort of standing up to the other one and I had to start over with a new structure. And it's kind of frustrating, I think, to spend months working on something and then toss it out. But my hope is that all of that work is kind of informing the book that does exist and is kind of under the surface. Does that mean that you actually wrote an entire half a book from Marion's perspective? Yeah, essentially. And it's funny because it's hard to remember now because I think as you go on, it feels like you're discovering what the true book is or like you're figuring out what the actual shape of the book should be. And then you kind of forget everything that you tried and discarded in the beginning. Like in one early draft, Tessa was actually a physiotherapist working with people who had been hurt in the conflict. And that was discarded as I went along. And I write longhand, so I have a plastic bin with all of the sort of manuscript pages that are from the earlier drafts. Yeah, it's just hugely inefficient. I, I'm like astonished by writers who can sit down and write the first sentence and then write straight through to the end. Well, having interviewed writers for decades, your process is actually a little bit closer to what other people experience. The Joyce Carol Oates of the world are few and far between. So don't worry <laughs> yeah, about that's it. Sure. But that brings up a question. If she was a physiotherapist, what was the process to turn her into a BBC producer, which was always there in your research? I went to Belfast for the research trip after I had spent about a year working on the book, which ended up being useful because I sort of had the questions I actually needed answered instead of the questions I would have thought I needed for the different book that I was writing, the other draft. But it's just a lot of cutting and throwing things out and starting over and some sort of phrases maybe stay and some images will stay and be kind of a through line or a tow rope, but then a lot of the the scenes get cut. At what point do you realize then that you've got it right? It's so interesting. I always 
print out the whole novel and sit down and read it through, which is something that one of my creative writing professors told us about in my grad program to sort of sit down with your whole draft and don't hold a pen and don't do any editing and just try to read it as though you're a reader. And that I find really helpful because you just hear it differently if you're not trying to edit and you're not trying to write it and you're trying to approach it as a stranger. You have to sort of pretend that you've never encountered the characters before or the material before and then read through and see what it's like to sort of be walking through their lives with them or walking through the landscape with them. At some point, it does feel like it's in the right shape. But that also means, of course, along the way, you've hit dead ends. How much do you think your unconscious plays in this? How much is conscious? It's so interesting that you ask that. I just recently listened to a hypnosis track online for, for creativity, because I think it is hugely to do with your unconscious or your subconscious. And the pandemic has been really hard for me and a lot of people I've talked to in that it feels like my unconscious is completely absorbed in just, you know, the daily reality of the pandemic. And so it's hard to access all of these other images or ideas or stories or character bits. So yeah, I think it's so much to do with your unconscious. And a lot of the writing for me will happen when I'm not at my desk. You know, like if I'm pushing my kids in a stroller or I'm at a playground, like something will sort of bubble up to the surface that I hadn't been expecting. Well, I found that if I shower before an interview, that's probably the most where I get my best questions. Mm. So. Yeah, something about water, it's swimming or taking a bath or a shower. It does seem like water sort of unlatches something. Flynn Berry, let's go back a bit in your career. I assume as a kid, you read a lot. What were you reading and what drew you to writing? I did read constantly. I had a very conflicted relationship with the library in my town because I always had huge late fees. Where was that? Irvington, New York on the Hudson. And it has the most beautiful library. And it did when I was little, it, it was in an old building on the main street with these sort of stained glass Tiffany windows, just a really enchanting place. And I read, I mean, I read everything I could find. I read green and violet and all the color fairy books by Andrew Lane and really loved those. And Madeline Lengel, I adored and C.S. Lewis, but really it's just, you know, like stacks of books I would bring home from the library. I think every writer who I know is a reader first, and I'm definitely a reader first, and the writing comes straight from that. At what point did you realize you would be trying to write? That's also always been there. I think it's just a compulsion that has always existed for me. I remember writing stories and showing them to my parents when I was little. I actually wrote a letter, a fan letter to Philip Pullman, who wrote The Golden Compass. And he very kindly wrote back with publishing advice and took my letter very seriously, which is very, very kind of him. So I was I don't know, like eight years old or something. That desire has always been there. Did you study literature at Brown? I did. I took literature classes and creative writing classes. And that propelled you. According to what I read, you wrote two novels that never got published. I did, yeah. I wrote a novel that started in college, and then I kept working on it for a few years. And then another novel that I started in my grad program and worked on for about two years and never sent either of them out. I did that thing where you print it all out and you sit down and you read it as though you're a reader. And it never felt like it was something that I wanted to send out or try to publish. And I think that is also really common. I heard from a lot of people who visit our grad program that they have novels in drawers that they 
wrote to sort of teach themselves how to write a book or how to have the endurance to actually sit down and write something that long, but that it wasn't something that was their own voice, maybe. Were these thrillers? They weren't. And actually, I think for me, finding crime fiction was a really huge way of finding my own voice and what I'm interested in. Were you more attracted to, say, the Sisters in Crime books by people like Sue Grafton or Sarah Paretsky, or were you drawn to, say, Elmore Leonard or Jean Le Carre or who? My favorite novel that's in the kind of thriller genre would be When Will There Be Good News by Kate Atkinson. And that was the first book that I read that decided that was what I wanted to try to do, that kind of blend of a literary novel and a crime novel, where she spends a huge amount of time on the characters and their psychology and their family relationships and what they're eating and what the landscape looks like. But then it's all through this sort of frame of a really compelling mystery. Under the Harrow, which was your first published novel, how did that come into existence? So Under the Harrow, I started when I was living in Austin, and there was a home invasion murder in my neighborhood. And I felt pretty terrified. And my two roommates, who were also women, were pretty terrified. And I just sort of started thinking about that sort of crime and investigating it was almost like a sort of way of trying to set it right. Like I knew how powerless I am in the actual world. And I knew how I would keep hearing these stories of things happening and do nothing about them. Uh, And writing the book was a way of kind of restoring order, I think. It felt a bit like a lot of the fairy tales I had read where you want some sort of justice or revenge or retribution. And that's how I feel also when I'm reading crime fiction, that the world is so messy and so complicated and so many terrible things happen. And then this is one small universe where you're going to find the solution and there will be some sort of justice. And then it came out and won the Edgar Award. Did that shock you, surprise you, or had the reviews been such that you were kind of hoping for? It was so great. It was also just a really special night. The Edgar Awards are at a banquet. And so there are all these mystery writers there together and you get to meet people and talk about their work and then have this lovely dinner and speakers. And it just feels really sort of exuberant and warm and enthusiastic and would have been an extraordinary night even if I hadn't won. But yeah, that was that was incredible. And the award itself is a like ceramic bust of Edgar Allan Poe's head, which is pretty terrific also. This kind of like macabre looking Edgar Allan Poe statue. And then the second novel, uh, Double Life, which I assume you'd been writing at that point, it's based on a real-life scandal. Uh, What's interesting about the books is they're all set over there, not over here. They are, yeah. The Double Life, loosely based on the Lord Lucan case, and is set in England. I think it's because my favorite writers have been British and Irish, and so it just felt like a sort of joy to set something on those islands. And then the book I'm working on now is set in New England. And it's interesting to try to have that same atmosphere because I think the pleasure of writing books set there is that if I say it's a book set in Ireland or a book set in Northern Ireland, there's already so much work done on the reader's part where they're picturing something that's kind of like a green landscape or they're picturing rain or they're picturing the ocean. And that helps so much with creating the kind of mood of the book. And this one's set in New England. 
But that also means at some point you're going to have to travel there to do the step of research that makes you throw out what you've yeah, already Yeah, written. we're actually planning to move to New England, actually. So that's convenient because it'll be closer than where we are now. And it is nothing better than that stage of research when your ideas are all kind of beginning to form and to to spin off into different uh, sort of tangents and you're filling notebooks with little scraps of dialogue or ideas about scenes. That part's so exciting. And it's something that we haven't been able to do because of the lockdown. So it's it's going to be such a joy to return to that. Flynn Berry, uh, with three novels under your belt, I checked IMDb, nothing in the works yet for film or television for any of them. I would assume they've all been optioned. They have. The first two have been optioned. The third one is out now with my film agent. So I'm having I'm having some phone calls this week to talk about different possibilities, which is really exciting. And so we'll see. Have you ever thought about writing for film, theater, or TV? I think theater would be the most of a draw for me. I took drama classes in college and grad school and love playwriting. Film, I just think it's such a hard talent. I've I've talked to one of my friends is a producer and she's mentioned how there are some novelists like Nick Hornby and David Nichols who are extraordinary screenwriters at adapting other people's books. But I think it's it's rare and I don't know if it's something that I would want to devote myself to learning because I feel really sort of compelled by the the new novel that I'm working on. And what about short stories? Short stories also are just such a specific art form. And there's a writer called Sarah Hall, whose stories I adore. And I think she's the one who said that it has to sort of feel like lightning in a bottle, a short story. Like there has to be some sort of electric current and charge. And I think that's also a really different form than a novel. And I really love novels because you have such a, a long amount of space in which you can have kind of flows and and ebbs and you can go on sort of digressions and um, have a lot of room to look at the characters as opposed to the, the compression of a short story. Flynn Barry, you said you're working on a novel set in New England. Uh, do you have the outlines of where, what it's based on, or are you just going from scratch at this point? So I have, I have an idea for the opening. I think that's sort of where where I'm at right now. And I have that superstition that a lot of writers have about not talking about work in progress until it's a little bit further along at the moment. But yeah, it is also about a woman with a young child. So that part has stayed sort of consistent. It also sounds as if from what you've said before, you can't really talk about it too much because you haven't made that jump that you need to make to make sure it all yeah, works. Yeah, exactly. It feels funny to describe the sort of one sentence plot summary for a novel when it changes so much in the couple of years it takes to write. You've been listening to an interview with Flynn Berry, whose latest novel is Northern Spy. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>